this series is talking about gratitude in difficult seasons. So those two words don't really go together generally. It's kind of oil and water. Like we know what gratitude's like. We've felt gratitude before. And we know what difficult seasons are. We've felt those before, right? But doing those at the same time doesn't always make sense, right? So anybody that was here last week, we saw that play out in real time. So we saw our beloved Pastor Matt dancing on stage. He was feeling gratitude during worship, right? Whereas his wife Tracy, who was sitting right there, was having a difficult season. So we saw that play out right before us. He was feeling grateful. He was feeling gratitude. She was concerned. Both happened. But our kind of our hinge verse, our anchor verse for, for this series is Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And it says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. So out the gate, I'm in trouble. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he's done. So every time I stumble across that verse, um, I think of my buddy Craig, and he was going through some really difficult times at work. We were talking about this verse, and it talks about pray about everything. And I said, well, did you pray about that situation? He goes, well, no. I said, do you think it would have been different if you would have prayed about it? And he said, I think a lot of things would be different if I would pray about it. And that's the case for us too, right? Then verse 7 says, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So I really want us to focus on those words, as you live in Christ Jesus. So look at this picture. Who knows what a linchpin is? So a linchpin is this pin in the middle, so it's holding this wheel together. Everything behind that is held together by the linchpin. If we lose the linchpin, it falls apart, it doesn't work anymore. Everything that was put together beyond that linchpin no longer works, right? So sometimes I look at scripture and I see a linchpin in the scripture, a part of the scripture or story or verses that tie the rest of the verses together, that tie the story together. So the first time I saw this when it was when I was looking at the Lord's Prayer and I was listening to a sermon and it talked about hallowed be thy name. So hallowed is a, is a word we don't use very often, but it means to honor or respect or revere. So hallowed be his name, right? And then, then you look at the rest of the Lord's Prayer, and it says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's why we hallow him, right? Give us this day our daily bread. That's why we hallow, hallow him for his provision for us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others because he first forgave us. We hallow him because of that. Deliver us from evil and lead us not into temptation. We were able to do those things because we hallow his name. It all kind of feeds off hallow. So in this, these verses in Philippians, that as you live, to me, is the linchpin part of the verse, of the verses that are listed. So as we live, to truly live in Christ helps us not to worry. It tells us not to worry about anything, to pray about everything. So if we're not going to worry, we need to live in Christ. If we're not living in Christ, we're probably not praying to him. It's why we thank him, because we're living in him. It's why we experience God's peace, because we learn that by living in him. And when we live in him, it says that he'll guard you. What the verse says is he will, his peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus, as we live, as we are grateful. But what about when things get tough? 
But what about when we choose not to live in him? Or maybe we've accidentally found ourselves not living in him because we weren't thinking about what we were doing and we're already down the road. We didn't go to him at all. So we need a reminder. We need a reminder that he loves us. When we think about when he loves us, he loves us no matter what. So there's a sign that uh, my daughter and I made together. And it hangs in her room, and it says simply that, no matter what. We did this several years ago, so we worked together, we put it together, we painted it. I am terrible at putting things together and painting, but this turned out okay. We did this together. We hung it in her room, and I hung it, and we kind of focused on those words because my reminder to her was meant to be, I love you no matter what. I love you when we're having fun, playing around, laughing, joking. I love you regardless of proximity, whether we're close or whether we're far apart. I love you when you're emotionally hurt, when you're spiritually hurt, when you're physically hurt, when you're scared, through your tears. I love you. And that's what I wanted the sign to remind her of. And that's what a good father does, right? He loves his child no matter what. And I definitely don't get it right all the time, but he does. He loves me no matter what. He loves me regardless of what's happening or how I'm responding. So we made that sign together with the intent to remind her, right? But over the years, what I've learned is that sign is a reminder to me as well. She's 12. She's about to be 13. The teenage years are coming. I am going to need constant reminders <laughs> to love her no matter what. That sign's for me. I didn't know when we were making it, but that sign's for me to remind me to love her no matter what. It's also my reminder to myself that his love is constant. No matter what I'm doing, no matter what mistakes I make, no matter what I'm going through, he loves me no matter what. And that love is why we were able to show gratitude, why we were able to show thankfulness to him, why we're able to show gratitude when it's difficult, no matter what, as we live in Christ. So we're going to look at three examples in Scripture of people going through some really difficult times. And I said, it says difficult seasons, but it's really much more than a difficult season for these people. So one man is going through suffering and isolation for a long period of time. One person is suffering from poverty. Two gentlemen are in prison. And the third scenario we're going to look at, and as we look at them, we're going to look at how they responded and what they put their hope in as they were going through that difficult time. And then we're going to see in each scenario how God used their circumstances, how God used their difficulty, what the kingdom opportunity was inside that. So I challenge you as we're going into this to think about your difficult season. So whether it's now or whether it's in the past, how did you feel during that difficult time? What did you put your hope in? And as you look back, especially some of the ones we've made it through, what is the kingdom opportunity that you saw come out of that? So our first example is in John 5.2. And it says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which, is, which has five roofed colonnades. So roofed colonnades, think of just columns, rows of columns, and then there's a roof over them. So roofed colonnades. And in verse 3, it says, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So you think of these five roof colonnades, long column, columned areas with roofs over them. The people there are blind, lame, and paralyzed. It looks like a war zone. There are people everywhere that are suffering. So then in verse 5 it says, there was one man 
there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Let's put 38 years in perspective for a moment. 38 years was 1984. Some people in this room weren't even alive yet. Most of us in this room, I I would bet, were very different people back then. In 1984, Ghostbusters was the highest grossing film. Prince was the number one artist that year. Apple introduced the first Mac computer. The Raiders won the Super Bowl. The Tigers won the World Series. Neither one of them have done either since then, so ask them how long 38 years feels like. (laughs) And maybe the most telling out of all those is gas was $1.10 a gallon. The good old days, right? Gas was $1.10. So imagine suffering and being isolated since 1984, since gas was $1.10 a gallon. So then in verse 6, it says, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? This guy's been suffering for 38 years. Yes. Yes, he wants to be healed. But he doesn't, he doesn't know who he's talking to yet. So in verse 7, the sick man answered him and said, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. So there was a belief at the time that this pool was stirred up by angels periodically with no warning, but it would be stirred up. And if you were the first one to the pool when the water got stirred, that you would be healed. So this man, given his situation, given his physical health, he's never going to be the first one to the pool. He's in a state of hopelessness. And we don't know how long he's been waiting for the pool to be stirred up. We don't know how many times he saw it get stirred up and he never made it. Jesus says that, it says that Jesus knew that he'd been there a long time. And it says that scripture said there were multitudes of people there. So I looked up the Greek translation of what multitudes means. It means a lot. A lot of people were there. But then, that day Jesus was there. We don't know why he was there that day. We don't know why he picked that one man. We don't know if he interacted with anybody else that was there at the time. There were a lot of people waiting for the water to be stirred up. Then Jesus showed up. So what do we wait for? What are some of the things that we wait for? My wife and I have been married for 14 years. For the first few years of our marriage, we waited for a child. We wanted to start our marriage and and have a child. And that prayer wasn't answered initially. We suffered through two miscarriages during that time for the first several years of our marriage. And that was really difficult. We had people surround us, but we turned to God during that time through tears, through anger, through disappointment. But we eventually learned to lean on him like we never had before. We were blessed with a child, thank God. But even if we hadn't been blessed with that child, if we had never been able to have a child, our marriage was stronger because of what we drew from each other and from him during that time. So the kingdom opportunity here is in verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Why did he have to wait 38 years? There were decades of interactions and struggles and frustrations that he probably went through. But once he was healed, it didn't matter. The first thing he wanted to tell people was about Jesus. In our second example, we're going to look at Acts 3.1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at a time of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those 
entering the temple. So he was lame from birth. He never knew any different. The first thing people noticed about him was the last thing he wanted them to notice about him, that he was lame, that he couldn't help himself. It became his identity. You think about that, what is, maybe what's the first thing people see in us when they see us? And verse 3 says, seeing Peter and John go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. So alms were like an offering, a gift, so money, food, something, something we might offer to someone on the side of the road as, as they're begging, as they're asking for a donation of some sort. And Peter gazed at him in verse 4, as did John, and said, look at us. So it doesn't really tell you why they say look at us, but I kind of see it two different ways. So one, maybe he says look at us because a lot of people walk past this guy every day. He probably feels pretty ashamed of his situation. He's not in a real dignified position. People are bringing him to the spot and laying him there and having him pray all day and then bringing him back home again. So maybe Peter and John were saying look at us like you need to see us and know that we see you. You interact with a lot of people every day, but it's different. This time's different. We want you to see us and be seen. Or maybe Peter and John were just super broke too, which is likely, which we're going to refer to in just a moment. So maybe they're wearing rags. Maybe they could have just as easily been next to him, maybe standing up, not lame, but just as easily next to him begging, asking for alms. Had a friend named, and in that scenario, they're like, Look at us. Like, what are we going to do for you? So I had a friend that he had a rule. There's some wisdom in this. He had a rule that he would never wear nice clothes to a family reunion or to a family funeral because he didn't want his family to think he had money. And they didn't, <laughs> he didn't want them to think that he had money. So he, that was his version of look at us. Look at me. Don't ask me for anything. So then verse 5 says he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So I want to focus on that word expecting for a minute and what expectations are like. What expectations do to us? Uh, one of our neighbors has just started her freshman year at UNC Wilmington. It's her first semester out there. She's excited, first time away from home. Beautiful place. So she made a new group of friends, and the first week they were there, they wanted to go see the sunset. So they went to the beach in Wilmington, which faces east, <laughs> to see the sunset that sets in the west. Shortly after they got there, they're looking and they realize pretty quickly that they're not going to see what they thought they were going to see. But the sun still set. It was still beautiful. They just had to watch it over a gas station <laughs> instead of the ocean. So in the previous example... The man wanted to be healed by the stirring water in the pool. In this example, the expectation that this man has is for charity. That he thinks that perhaps charity will help him. Money or food would make a difference. But just like the first story, God had a different plan. God had a different plan here too. So the first thing Peter says is, I have no silver and gold. This is in verse 6. I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So immediately, he tells this man, what you're asking for, I don't have. How many times 
said, that guy here, we can't help you. If someone even made eye contact with him, how many times did he hear that I have nothing for you? So Peter comes out the gate immediately with just dashed his hopes. I don't have silver and gold. But the lame man was asking the wrong question. Something amazing was about to happen. And Peter wanted to give Jesus Christ 100% of the credit. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. The beggar had no idea what was going to happen, but Peter knew confidently what was about to happen. Peter, who denied Christ three times, is now living in Christ and knows confidently that when he calls on Christ, he is going to let them, he is going to allow him to heal this man. So we never know when that breakthrough is going to happen. The beggar didn't know that that was going to happen. In verse 7 it says, he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. So you see those words, made strong. So after being lame his entire life, he would have been pretty happy just being able to stand again. He would have been thankful and grateful to be able to walk with a limp. But, that, but God one-upped him. He healed him and firmed him up is what the words mean in Greek. So it says, made strong in Greek, it says, firmed him up, made it strong. So the first thing he did in verse 8, leaping, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So as he's going through his lifetime of being lame, you know he's thinking about, if I was able to walk, what's the first thing I would do? I'm going to leap. Like that's, that's, uh, I'm going to take a swing at leaping. I see people leaping. That looks awesome. I'm going to do that. I used to work uh, in the medical field, and I was in the ICU. And there was this gentleman. He is intubated, so he had the breathing tube, but he couldn't speak. For two weeks, doing very poorly, his wife was there. His wife of over 50 years was there visiting him every day, talking to him, holding his hand. And we were waiting. He was getting better, slowly getting better. And we're, it's finally the day we're going to take the breathing tube out. There's two weeks where he sees his wife coming here and she's showing her love. And you know how guys are really good at saying the right thing at the right time? So this is a great example. So he had two weeks to think about what his first words were going to be. And he said, sweet tea. All he wanted was to drink a sweet tea in that moment. His wife was happy to give him sweet tea. But I had my whole Hallmark scenario in my head where I thought that was going to go much different. But so he's healed. He's leaping, and he doesn't praise Peter and John. He doesn't praise these people that walk up to them. He's praising God because that's who Peter and John gave credit for the healing. So the kingdom opportunity is outlined in verse 9. All the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So he... He had waited his entire life. These same people that see him now were walking past him. These same people were probably stepping over him. And now they not only see him praising God, but they see him leaping. I think the story is a great reminder of giving him glory when we see him do something great in our lives, to be witnesses to what he's doing in our lives. In our third example, we're going to go to Acts 16.20. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing 
are sitting. So the they in this scenario are Paul and Silas. And they're being accused of disturbing the city. So what they did that disturbed the city, there was a slave girl who was possessed. And part of that possession, as part of that possession, she was able to tell the future. So people that had her as a slave were using her and making money off of her ability to tell the future. So the disturbance that they caused was actually driving the demon out of this girl. They were caught doing good, and they were imprisoned for it. And here's what happened next in, in verse 21. It says, They advocate for customs that are not lawful to us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them, gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So stocks are like wood on top, wood on bottom, holes in the middle. So their feet are in the stocks. So we just got through Thanksgiving weekend, right? So no matter what your Thanksgiving weekend looked like, travel delays, family stuff, whatever, I'm betting last night none of us in here, since you're here, you didn't spend last night in prison with your feet in stock. So we're all already have something to be thankful for. We're doing better than Paul and Silas were in this scenario. So to recap, there's a slave girl. She's possessed. She's being taken advantage of. They free her. They spiritually heal her. That earned them getting their clothes torn, beaten with rods, put in prison. And not just prison, the inner prison. So it's like the prison inside the prison, like the no windows part of the prison. And then they fasten their feet in stocks. So put yourself in their shoes. So put yourself in their stocks. So what would you do? How would you react? So here's what they did in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So I visited a prison once. I heard zero people singing hymns to God. So these other prisoners must have thought, that was interesting, and that was odd. So then at, it says at midnight, that same night, so in the moment, they had just gotten to prison. They had just gotten beaten, and their clothes torn. They focused on God. They didn't focus on a pool of water. They didn't focus on alms being offered. They focused on him. So verse 26 says, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all of the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Everyone's bonds were unfastened. We don't know how many people were in the prison. We don't know if they were in prison for a justified reason or something like what Paul and Silas did. But we do know that someone in there was a prisoner, and they heard singing and praying hymns to God, and then they were freed. So verse 30 says, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So let's back up just a little. What happened in this story? So the jailer, and I just caught this this morning when I was reading back the description. In verse 27, it says that the jailer woke. So he was sleeping on the job. And he wakes up 
everybody's out. He had one job. His job, he probably was going to be fine sleeping. Everybody's in cells, in prison. Some people are in stocks. That's probably not the first time he took a nap. But when he woke up and he saw he had failed his one job, what he threatened to do was kill himself with his own sword. He drew his own sword because he was worried that the fate that he was going to receive for all these prisoners escaping, he had no idea why yet. He just knew they were all out and he was in big trouble. He knew that his fate might have been similar to what Paul and Silas received. So then, so say it's you and I in that prison and we're freed. The first thing I'm going to do, if I can run, I'm running. I'm getting as far away from that prison as I can. I never would have been there to see this man want to commit suicide because of what had just happened. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul says, we are here. He didn't run because of the kingdom opportunity that was there. And in verse 31, so in verse 30, again, he says, he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do? So he went from imprisoning these men watching his comrades beat them, and now he's calling them sir. What a role reversal is that in one night? In verse 31, he said, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So as we look at the kingdom opportunities, more than one in this one, the other two, we saw that one kingdom opportunity. Here we see two kingdom opportunities. One, all the prisoners were listening to them. They heard what happened, and then they were freed from prison. They went out to tell those stories. We don't know what impact they had, but there's no way that didn't affect them going forward. And then in verse 32, we look back at our jailer. And he took them, so he took Paul and Silas in the same hour immediately after he just called them sir. He washed their wounds. The person that imprisoned them was washing the wounds that that his comrades caused in them, on them. And then he was baptized at once, him and all of his family. What a kingdom opportunity through suffering. So there's no promise that we're going to have immediate relief like we see in this story. But all three examples show how God changes things through our circumstances. All three examples show what people had hope in as they were going through a difficult time. First story, the guy had hope in healing water. The second story had hope in gifts or charity. And the third story, we see Paul and Silas, they had hope in him, hope in Christ. But what's great is all three stories end up in the same spot. All three stories end up with the take-home point of having hope in Christ. So that's the knowledge that we can draw from when we're going through something that's difficult. That's what produces faith and causes us to seek gratitude when times are tough. And that's how God designed us as well. So there was a study, and we look at how gratitude ties in with his design for us. So there were a couple studies, and there were a lot of studies done, but two of the ones I looked at, one was done at the University of California at Davis. And they had three groups of people. And over 10 weeks, they did a pre-assessment on those people to kind of get a baseline of where those people were. So they broke them into three groups. The first group was asked to do basically a gratitude journal. For 10 weeks, they just wrote every day about something they were thankful for, something they were grateful for. 
The second group was told to write about the things that annoy them, the things that bother them, the, basically a negative journal, and do that every day. And the third group was basically just asked to keep a diary, write about what happens during your day, no emphasis on positive or negative. And what they found, they did a post-study assessment on those people. And they found that they scored, at the end of that, they scored, it showed that they were more optimistic and more had a more positive overall outlook. One of the surprising things they found is they were actually more active and healthier at the end of that 10 weeks. In the UCLA study, they did a study on gratitude in the brain, and they did MRIs to measure the activity in your brain. So they would expose people to things, to situations where they would feel gratitude, like receiving gifts and things like that. And they found that the increased activity in parts of the brain that happened as a result of that were associated with moral and social awareness and reward and empathy. Those parts of their brain lit up when they were, had a feeling of gratefulness as part of his design. So in, to sum those up, what they said was, in short, gratitude can boost the neurotransmitter serotonin. I was working all day to work serotonin into the sermon, and activate the brainstem to produce dopamine, our, our brain's pleasure chemical. The more we think positive, grateful thoughts, the healthier and happier we feel. Maybe, maybe a gratitude journal is not our worst idea. Maybe thinking of thing, about things we're thankful for is something we could do to take a step towards living in Christ. So we talked a little bit about the kingdom opportunities in some of these stories in scripture and how our difficult seasons can be a way to choose to be grateful because we have an awareness of what God can do in those difficult times. So I dug more in the scripture to see, and there's plenty of examples of people going through difficult times in scripture. And what I found time and time again is that it doesn't stop at gratitude. Scripture upgrades it. It supersizes it. Check this out. In 1 Thessalonians 5.16, it says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's very similar to our verses in Philippians when it talks about giving thanks, right? So it says, Give thanks in all circumstances, not for all circumstances. You don't necessarily have to be thankful for the thing that you're going through. But in that, giving thanks to God is what he wants us to do. But then look at the word Paul uses at the very beginning. Rejoice always. Let's talk about the word rejoice. So rejoice isn't a word that we use a lot. Rejoice is a word we hear around Christmas time, right? It's not, when's the last time you used rejoice in a sentence and the month wasn't December? It's not a word that we use very often. So let's look at a word that we use even less than rejoice. So the word for rejoice in Greek is C-H-A-I-R-O. And it's pronounced chairo. So you get to do that like clear your throat, getting over a cold thing that maybe your grandpa used to do when he wakes up in the morning. Chairo. So I'll have everybody say that with me once. Chairo. Very good. So what chairo means, it means to be in a state of happiness to be delighted. It's a state of being. It's not just a word we use. He calls us to be in a state of happiness as we live in Christ. So I want to look 
But the first example in Scripture, everybody's favorite book, Habakkuk. We're going to look at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there are no herd in the stalls. So I have never had a fig tree. I don't know anything about olives. I barely eat fruit. I don't have a flock. I don't have a herd. I don't have stalls to put a herd in. But I can gather that a lot of things are going wrong here in Habakkuk, right? I can relate to a lot of things going wrong at once. I think we can all relate to that. So about a month ago, my truck got rear-ended. I was sitting in a stoplight. I got rear-ended. So the whole insurance body shop rodeo, I'm getting to do all that. So that, that's fun. I got a cell phone bill about two weeks ago for $471. So I've been talking to Verizon periodically every couple days. Health insurance. Our health insurance, we got a, something in the mail that said we may not have health insurance. We thought we had health insurance, but, but maybe we don't. Then we did the recent Share Hope Serve opportunity here at Journey. If you're visiting, we do something every year called Share Hope. And we worked with Bags of Hope, which is the local ministry that's here. We worked with Operation Christmas Child. And we worked with Hearts and Hands Food Pantry. We, Journey really stepped up and shared hope with, with our community. But as we were doing that, the last day, this was just Tuesday, a lot of things were going wrong. There was some miscommunication with one of the folks we were working with, and things didn't go as I had planned. My expectations weren't being met. I was looking at the ocean for the sunset, right? I missed the opportunity to rejoice. So I was preparing this message. I was just reading. I had known what Cairo meant for about 20 minutes when this happened, and I was getting frustrated. It wasn't natural for me to rejoice. The only reason the word rejoice was in my head was because I had just read about it that morning, not because I was feeling it. I had to choose to get there, and it wasn't easy. I was delivering food to some folks in East Charlotte. I was off of Independence. Nobody driving on Independence is thankful for anything. Independence is horrible. If you've been there, nobody looks for reasons to go to Independence, right? But I'm there, so I'm already not enjoying that. This other thing has gone wrong, but I have food in my car to bring to somebody. And I'm not rejoicing. So then I get to the first house, and there's a woman named Linda. She, she's rejoicing because of Journey. We're, she has a Thanksgiving dinner. I use that opportunity. God, God used that opportunity to reset me and help me to rejoice. So after all that is going wrong for Habakkuk in verse 18, it says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. All that has gone wrong, his olives, his fruit, his stalls, all those other things I don't have. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. So through all those things, I'm going to choose to delight in him. I'm going to choose the high role, right? Our next example in Luke 6, 22. But blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. So that first part, when people hate you, exclude you, revile you, spurn you, whatever that means. 
The translation of that in Greek is actually, surprisingly, the election season in the United States. So all those things, that's not really it. But we can relate to people being treated that way, right? And they're all being treated that way as, account, as an account on account of the Son of Man. And it says in verse 23, what should I do when that's happening? I should rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for their fathers did to the prophets. So we just left a Thanksgiving weekend, right? Were there any disagreements around the table this year? Or as you're spending time with friends and family? Did you maybe disagree about a football game? Or about the past? Or about politics? Or about a side dish? I had a good Thanksgiving, but maybe a lot of people didn't. And if you were going through those difficult times with those family and friends, were you rejoicing? Do you spend any time rejoicing in that moment? That's not, that's not our default. That's not what we naturally do. So our last example is in Acts 540. And it says, And when they had called on the apostles and beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So, again, they're getting beaten. Not only are they getting beaten, they're told not to even say the name of Jesus, their Messiah, their Savior. They're told to not even speak his name. And they said, okay, that's fine. Here's what we're going to do. They left their presence rejoicing. They were, they were counted worthy to suffer the dishonor for, for the name. They were grateful. They were thankful in their suffering. So I gave you a few biblical examples of rejoicing during suffering. I want to give you a real-world example, something that just happened last week. Some of, some of you may have heard that the WBTV meteorologist Jason Myers, his helicopter crashed off of I-77, and he died in that crash. So I don't know Jason. I don't know his wife, Jillian. But I want to share with you what she wrote two days later. Her husband passed away unexpectedly, tragically, on Tuesday. And on Thursday, this is what she wrote. This Thanksgiving, I am thankful that we do not grieve as those without hope. So as you're hearing these words, think of this as a woman who has just lost her husband. I'm thankful that we do not grieve as those without hope. All our hope and comfort lies in knowing Jesus and that his resurrection proved that he overcame death. Because we know that to be true, we know that eternal life and the hope and joy that it brings is Jason's reality. And the confidence in knowing that is what we are walking in and what is upholding us. Giving thanks for this in almost 20 years of marriage four beautiful children. I'm married into a lovely family, and I'm privileged to be reminded by their presence of how influential they were in helping him be the incredible person that he was. He was like no other, my better half in every way. He loved me so incredibly well with every ounce of his being, so very much to give thankful for this Thanksgiving. We truly are experiencing the goodness of God today. She lost her husband two days before this. She's using, using words like thankful, hope, 
joy, confidence, thanks, privileged. And she ends it with so much to give thankful for this Thanksgiving. We are truly experiencing the goodness of God today. What a great example of finding gratitude in a difficult season. What a great example of how to live in Christ when things are going horribly. What a great example of choosing hiero to choosing a state of mind when everything in you and everything around you is telling you not to do that. Talk about seizing a kingdom opportunity and the platform that she has through her husband's death to tell people about the goodness of Jesus. So there can be two truths. We see it in scripture. We see it here with with Jillian. We can be suffering and rejoicing simultaneously. When Matt was dancing, that happened with him and Tracy, right? He was rejoicing and she was suffering. And that's okay. So whether it's one night, like it was with Paul and Silas, whether it's 38 years, like the invalid that we talked about, whether it's a lifetime, like the lame man that was at the gate, or if it's two days after suffering the loss of a loved one, sometimes the sun sets for the gas station. So I want to end this series with a quote that Matt started the series with from Ann Voskamp. It says, gratitude isn't only a celebration when things happen. It's a declaration that God is good no matter what happens. He is good. He is faithful. And he loves you no matter what. So I want us to take a minute to think about our difficult seasons, stuff we've been through, stuff we've struggled with, Maybe reflect on what the kingdom opportunity was within those circumstances. Looking back, how can we see what God did with that difficult time? I want to spend just a minute here, just you and God. There's going to be distractions that pop, and you're going to start thinking about something else. Don't let the enemy do that. Take a moment in silence here and just think about the kingdom opportunities that he's honored your difficult times with. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your peace. We thank you for the peace that you give us that we don't understand. We thank you that that peace guards our hearts and our minds. Ask that you remind us, Father, to maybe do a gratitude journal, whether it's on paper or in our minds, help us to remember things that we are grateful for, to focus on the things that we are grateful for. Help us take steps, Father, to live in you, to really see what it looks like to live in you. So the next time 
one of these difficult seasons comes our way, it's different for us because we're choosing to live in you. Help us to remember the hope that we have in you, Father. Let that guide our decisions, our thoughts, and our actions. And as always, Father, we ask that you help us to remember that you love us no matter what. Thank you all.